Next year marks the 50th anniversary of the death of one of the most influential Baptist leaders of the 20th century. On April the 4th, 2018, no doubt millions around the world will remember that tragic day which some of us here will remember still when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on the balcony of a Memphis, Tennessee motel room. At the time, he was in the midst of an initiative called the Poor People's Campaign that was intended to culminate in a major event in Washington, D.C. Less than five years earlier, in that same city, he had inspired a quarter of a million people gathered in front of the Lincoln Memorial with his famous I Have a Dream speech about racial equality and equal opportunity for all. We sometimes forget that King was just 39 years old when he died. And as well as great triumphs, there lay a sometimes dark but moving story of personal suffering and sacrifices. He, like millions before and since, had struggled against the evils of racial discrimination. In his relatively brief life, King himself had endured vilification, beatings, imprisonments and death threats. So what kept him going? Like many others in that civil rights movement, it was his strong sense of God's call upon his life. Early in his career as an activist, King was arrested for driving five miles an hour over the speed limit and given, believe it or not, his first stint in jail. The night after his release, he was then warned in an anonymous phone call that if he didn't leave town within three days, he would be shot and that his house would be bombed. Not surprisingly, King was unnerved and he was very afraid. Who wouldn't have been for himself, indeed for his whole family? Then shortly afterwards, he sat at his kitchen table drinking a cup of coffee. He said later, I sat at that table thinking about my little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me at any minute. And I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted and loyal wife who was over there asleep And I got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. I was weak. And I discovered then that religion had to become real to me. And I had to know God for myself. King continued, And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I will never forget it. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed to me, King concluded, 
at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the very end of the world. Just three nights later, the menacing bomb threat made in that terrible phone call actually came true when a bomb exploded on the front veranda of the King home. Thankfully, no one was hurt, but he was able to get through it. My religious experience a few nights before had given me the strength to face it, he said. And time and time again, throughout his ministry, Martin Luther King returned to it to strengthen him whenever he faced terrible difficulties. The sufferings that so many have to endure this in this world always raise serious questions, don't they? And they don't all end in redemption on this side of eternity. That's why the problem of suffering presents one of the most serious challenges to those of us who proclaim belief as we do in an all-good, all-powerful God. The key question is always the same. How can an all-powerful, all-loving God allow so much pain and suffering in this world? Some of the greatest theologians in history have tried to address it. The whole branch of theology has been devoted to it under the technical name of theodicy. Now, let me assure you right now that I'm going to make no claim to offer a definitive answer to that question in a 20 to 25 minute sermon this morning. But I do think that our reading from Matthew 16 reminds us that the reality has much to teach us especially when we suffer, as King did ultimately, for our faith and convictions. So as we consider Jesus' prediction of his suffering and Peter's rejection of it, we can claim a clearer idea of one of God's key purposes in and through Christian suffering. Because it's so often when we take up our cross, whatever that may be, to follow Jesus, that while it may be very difficult and very burdensome, we will grow spiritually. However much we sometimes hanker for an easier, less demanding journey through life. Jesus exemplified this truth in incredibly powerful ways, despite the fact that those around him often resisted it. One of the most remarkable things about his life and ministry is that even though he clearly knew the terrible things that lay in store for him, including his ultimate sacrifice for our salvation on the cross, he actively pursued God's plan and purposes nonetheless. By this stage in Matthew 16, Jesus has been with his disciples for at least a couple of years. He's given ample demonstration of his his perfect character, his life-changing teaching and his wonder-working power. 
So he's just put them to the test by asking, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's the key issue that we must all face in one shape or form. And the Apostle Peter has given the ideal answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says. So Peter hails Jesus, not only as the the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, for whom the, the Hebrew people have been longing and praying for centuries, but as no one less than the Son of God. God in the flesh. God in person. Not surprisingly, Jesus praises Peter and singles him out for the highest honour. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, he says in verses 17 and 18 of Matthew 16. For this was not revealed to you by any human, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Yet despite this this remarkable insight and affirmation which many parts of the church still celebrate as a special holy day, our passage clearly reveals that, that neither Peter nor apparently any of the other disciples have yet understood the whole picture about Jesus. And that's only highlighted by their response is prediction of sacrificial suffering that we hear in verse 21. It's pretty blunt and as so often with Jesus it's very direct. From that time on, our text says, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. If anyone was ever in any doubt as to whether Jesus knew what was coming before his death and resurrection, here is direct confirmation that he did. Not only that, but he plainly sees ahead the terrible road of suffering and sacrifice as a matter of necessity On his part, he knows that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And he freely chooses to do so. That's the amazing thing about Jesus. Whatever the personal cost or consequences, he goes through all this for us and for our salvation. Now Jesus is obviously not seeking suffering for its own sake here. He doesn't have it the kind of martyr complex that might cause him to seek out pain for his own unhealthy gratification. No, this is the most positive, well-balanced person who has ever lived. And yet he's willing to suffer and die and rise again because he loves the world he came to save. He loves us all. And he knows what's necessary to rescue us from the penalty and power of sin. So sacrificial suffering is something that Jesus predicts as part of God's plan for him. 
The problem which emerges in verses 22 and 23 is that even the Apostle Peter, who has just identified Christ for who he really is, shows that he doesn't grasp the full consequences of that identification. In fact, he rejects any notion that the Son of God must suffer in this way. Now, it can be very easy for us 2,000 years after the fact, nearly, to jump all over Peter and the other disciples for such a failure and to get holier than thou after the fact. But who can ever be sure that if we had been expecting Christ to come with overwhelming power and certain victory over his enemies, as the disciples clearly did initially of their Messiah, we would not have reacted in a similar way. Who is to say that we would not have preferred a conquering king to a suffering servant and misunderstood that the two actually go together? After all, don't we sometimes do that in our own lives? Some of the most tragic Some of the most painful pastoral situations that I have ever seen have involved faithful family and friends who have simply refused to accept that God might have planned ultimate healing in heaven for their loved ones rather than a more immediate and or miraculous cure here in this life. But I've also seen many less extreme examples of people going through poverty or unemployment or grief or sickness or depression or broken relationships who have refused to acknowledge God's hand or help in their sufferings. No one who is psychologically healthy ever really likes to face pain and suffering. But they're facts of life, of course, whatever our personal preferences. So if our understanding of God is distorted by a false gospel that encourages us to expect unstinting health, wealth and happiness, as many of the prosperity teachers would have us believe on TV, if that's what we come to believe, we will be ill-equipped to cope with the harsher realities of this world. And Jesus takes such a need for for biblical realism very seriously. When Peter takes him aside and dares to rebuke him in verse 22, he says, Never, Lord, to Christ's prediction of future suffering. Jesus reprimands him in the harshest terms imaginable. Get behind me, Satan! You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now, I don't think that Peter, Jesus is saying that Peter has literally become the devil in verse 23. But he is implying that in a kind of way, he's acted as Satan's messenger. And why so? Because he's not only misunderstood Christ's central mission to offer himself as a living sacrifice for the sins of humanity, he has actively sought to dissuade him from it. So he's also failed to grasp what we'd all rather forget about a Christian view of the world, which is that life 
comes through death and salvation through suffering, not through sensational and superficial success. In his great work of apologetics from 1940, The Problem of Pain, which is still the best book I've ever read on the issue of suffering, C.S. Lewis wrote this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And verses 24 to 28 of our reading leave us in no doubt that when we truly follow Jesus, suffering, service and sacrifice are essential, not exceptional. The picture that Christ first focuses on stems from one of the terrible events surrounding his own future crucifixion when after brutal mistreatment the Roman authorities insist that he carries his own cross to the place of execution. And how does he apply this? If anyone would come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Jesus teaches. If anyone would come after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what is our cross? What is our cross? That will clearly depend on our circumstances. But it will always be found in some measure in sacrifice. It will involve self-denial and self-discipline to serve Christ. It will only be through giving up sometimes our own selfish desires and agendas that we will find God's will. It will only be through putting them to death that we will enter into the fullness of life with God. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, Jesus says. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. And he's clearly speaking metaphorically here. He's using picture language. So the ultimate measure will be found at the last judgment when Christ returns in glory to rule the world. That's certainly the perspective that we find in the last three verses of our reading. What good will it be for a person if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul, Jesus asks. Or what can someone give in exchange for her soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Verse 28 is somewhat ambiguous here, I think, but there's no need to read it as a false prophecy that Jesus would return within the lifetimes of some of his hearers. Christ could equally well be referring to coming in his kingdom after the resurrection. But Jesus' central argument is clear. There will be a day of judgment. And the only way to face that day with confidence is to turn from sin to salvation and from spiritual death to eternal Christ, 
eternal life with Christ. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it in a living, loving relationship with God in Christ that will literally last forever. So the ultimate purpose of suffering for the sake of the gospel is not only to serve and and glorify God in this life, it's to secure eternal life in the process. We can never earn our salvation, of course. We can't say that too often. But compared with the promise of heaven, no act of self-denial could surely be too extreme. No sacrifice too great as we take up our cross and follow Jesus. In fact, we can learn to see God's love and purpose in even the most tragic and seemingly inexplicable events of our lives. On May the 17th, 2008, the Christian recording artist Stephen Curtis Chapman and his family suffered a devastating loss when Chapman's 17-year-old son was backing his SUV out of the family's driveway, their five-year-old adopted daughter, Maria, was struck and killed. After much prayer and counsel, Chapman returned to touring to promote his newest album. And Elizabeth Diffin, a freelance reporter, attended one of his concerts. She wrote about the experience as follows, and I quote, It's not often you leave a concert reflecting on the words of a song by a different artist. But as I exited the July 24th Stephen Curtis Chapman event, the words of the Matt Redman worship song echoed through my head. Chapman opened the concert with Blessed Be Your Name, just two months after the death of his five-year-old daughter, Maria Sue, in a tragic accident at the family's home. Blessed Be Your Name was also the first song Chapman sang May 21st, the day of Maria's death itself, when he wasn't sure he'd ever be able to sing again publicly. Inspired by the story of Job, at one point the lyrics repeat, He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. As I sang this song, Chapman explained to his audience, It wasn't a song. It was a cry. It was a scream. It was a prayer. I found an amazing comfort and peace. That surpasses all understanding. An amazing comfort and peace that surpasses all understanding. Imagine being able to say that just months after the death of a child in such appalling circumstances. Imagine perhaps if you're not in that place for other reasons right now, being able to say it at all. And yet such is God's promise to us. Whatever our sufferings, they can actually be a source of hope, not despair. Promise rather than foreboding. Life, not death. When we learn to see them in the light of Christ and his sacrificial example. 
For whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, Jesus says. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And where will we find it? In the fruitful, abundant, everlasting life which he promises to us all by grace, through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ who gave literally everything he had so that we might get another chance. Let's bow our heads.